hello hello besties and all of my virgos what's up everybody (laughs) this bitch is always in a virgo mood don't let her fool you it's true that was me cracking a uh, watermelon white claw left here by my cousin chelsea cheers to you all raspberry Um, white claw the watermelon one yeah so it's your girl heather and mikey and we're here to bring you the molly bish case this is a crazy case we have a writer her name is Lori lamoth probably said it wrong but she's gonna be joining us to walk us through the timeline and all kinds of stuff so grab that beverage pack that bowl and we are gonna need it. it yeah Hello, hello, everyone. It's Heather and Mikey. Mikey. Here we we go again. Yes. And we have a Lori here with us. Hello. Hi. We are so excited that she is on the podcast. She is an amazing writer. She has some really, really great information about the Molly Bish case. Um, We have done some research and things over the last couple of weeks, Um, but she has far exceeded what we have done because she has actually been to the scene. On site, guys. On site. Done some testing. So, Lori, tell us a little bit about yourself and this amazing world that you're in with all of your writings and interviewings. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on here. Uh, I, you know, I listened to your last podcast on Matthew Shepard and you guys did an amazing job. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad to be here and be on the, sh- uh, be on the podcast with you. Um, oh, you. We're happy to have you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I am a freelance writer and write, I recently uh, started a sub stack uh, called Cold Case Files where uh, I'm posting a lot of all of uh, the stories that I'm working on. Uh, I'm also uh, writing for Newsbreak and um, I've got, you can also follow me uh, on Medium and I write for a lot of the publications there as well. So, and and as you mentioned, uh, I primarily focus on cold cages and Mm -hmm. unsolved mysteries. She's one of us, guys. She's one of us. Yes. She is one of us. And I will put all of Lori's information in the episode description, as well as a link to a couple things that she has written. And you definitely, guys, definitely got to check her out. Um, I was so intrigued when, you know, Heather told me about her. I was like, oh, let me check out her Instagram page. I, yes, I stalked her. And it was amazing. Um, There's so many cold cases on there, just pictures of like what went down and what had happened. And just, you know how the saying goes, like a picture says a million words. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's got some pretty decent pictures up there to show you like about a case or whatever she's working on at this point. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you. Well, that was one of the things I think when I started working on cold cases, you know, I knew the major cases, but I think what's floored me is just how many unsolved cases there are out there. And, oh my God, I know. Yeah. And, and it's so- It's definitely overwhelming if you, even if you just start looking by like state and I started doing kind of like what you did, I'm like, okay, let's look locally. What has happened here? I remember when I was a little girl, this girl named Karen Carhalva went missing. She was just roller skating in her apartment complex and she was never found. And this was like almost 30 years ago. And so kind of like how you were remembering, you know, when Molly Bish disappeared yeah. before she was found and then taking, um, going to the child safety kit that was sponsored by the Molly Bish Foundation, like yeah. all of these things. So yeah, there's just, it's very overwhelming and I just really appreciate all of the detectives and law enforcement and lawyers and people that consult on these cold cases because I just appreciate what they do so much. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Me too. And I mean, the great thing too about these cases is that now with all of the DNA advances, I mean, these cases are getting solved a lot of yeah. them, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. The technology we have now is so far advanced. Yes. Especially yeah. with like the 23andMe and Ancestry.com and people mm -hmm. finding links through familial DMA, familial DNA, <laughs> DNA. Spit it out, Heather, spit it out. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of cases have been being solved with that. Right. Um, so go ahead and give us like a brief little overview, Lori, if you don't mind. And then let's start dissecting the timeline, our favorite part. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, the timeline is very tight. Uh, I'm going to take you through uh, starting with the day before what happened with Molly. So uh, and if I miss anything, feel free to jump in or ask questions or whatever you need to do. Uh, so it's it's June 26, 2000, and Molly Bish is 16 years old, and she is just starting her job uh, as a lifeguard. She It was her first week. And so her mom, on the 26th, drives her to Commons Pond, where she was the lifeguard in Warren, Massachusetts. And when they drive into the parking lot, uh, they see this very weird guy, you know, this creepy looking guy smoking a cigarette with a mustache and he's in a white car. And, uh, you know, Molly's mom, uh, Maggie kind of gives him the eye, you know, and she said something to Molly, like, I, you know, I don't think I realized how isolated this place was. And so she actually got out of the car and she walked Molly to the beach and then she walked back and uh, the guy still was in the car, still sitting there. And I guess, you know, she continued to kind of stare him down. And then finally he leaves. So that was the day before. And I guess even that night, uh, you know, uh, Maggie and John, her dad, had talked to her. And he had even said something, you know, do you want to bring, you know, a baton or a bat? Right, right there to protect yourself uh you know and she said no no he's probably just some old fisher fisherman no big deal so uh the next um morning uh so a close friend of molly's uh actually had been in a serious car accident 
And this, this actually becomes kind of important because uh, what it did was it delayed their arrival uh, to the pond. So it condensed the timeline even more than it would have been. So they, uh, there are timestamps for this. Uh, they actually have timestamps from the uh, convenience store. She went to get some water. Uh, there were no cell phones back then, so she had to go to the police station and pick up a two-way radio. And every day when she got to the beach, she would call in and say, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm ready to start my shift. And they would know that they had a lifeguard on duty. Right. Uh, so there are actually, you know, there's a record of when she did that. And because of the delay with the accident with a friend, uh, she actually did not arrive into the parking lot until about 9.58. So right before the beach was supposed to open, it was the first day of swim lessons. Uh, they drive in and uh, they see a guy in a sand truck because they were depositing sand on the beach. And Molly's mom was really relieved because the man in the white car was nowhere in sight and she knew the guy from the, the sand truck. Man. So, <laughs> yes. So she felt safe. Uh, she dropped Molly off. Molly gets to the beach. Uh, she, nobody sees this, but this is what they found after. Uh, you know, she sets up her lifeguard chair, which there's a big official lifeguard chair, but back during that time, she actually had a folding chair. She sets that up. Uh, she takes off her shoes. She puts her water bottle in her shoe. Uh, you know, she's she's doing everything. She, she puts her towel on the back of her chair. And, uh, you know, that's the last anybody ever saw of Molly Bish. Uh, because about 20 minutes later, uh, one of the moms, um, Susan uh, Woodward, gets gets to the beach and there's no Molly. And so she, you know, they don't know parents are starting to show up, there's swim lessons, nobody knows what's going on. Uh, at one point, one of the parents, uh, you know, pulls Molly's whistle out of her backpack and starts, you know, being the lifeguard because they think maybe she went off with her boyfriend, maybe she did, you know, she, they didn't know. Right. Uh, finally, it gets to the point where somebody calls Ed Fats, and Ed Fats is the park commissioner. And they say, you know, where's where's the lifeguard? There's no lifeguard here. There's a bunch of little kids. And uh, so he then comes to the scene and he takes the police radio out of her bag and, you know, calls in to find out what's going on. And, you know, they realize... Uh, that Molly has never called in and that something is wrong. Right. Uh, it, oh but it still, it, it takes quite a while. You know, it, I think Molly's mom, you know, didn't end up, she wasn't called until maybe, you know, one o'clock or something in the afternoon. And the other thing that really is important is that um, because her shoes were very, because nothing was disturbed. The only thing that was odd uh, was that the first aid kit was open. Everything else, you know, nothing was disturbed, no signs of a struggle. And so 
you know, what everybody thought initially was, okay, she must have, she must have drowned. And so instead of treating it like a crime scene, uh, they actually, you know, it was the absolute opposite. You know, you had diving teams going into the water, you had people all over the beach and, you know, any potential evidence would have been destroyed. Mm-hmm. And it was only, uh, you know, much later when they started a search. And again, it was the biggest search in Massachusetts history, as, as far as I know, uh, and start going and looking for Molly. And there's no sign of Molly until, um, you know, three years later in June 2003, uh, somebody, they discover, uh, Molly's, some of Molly's remains about, uh, you know, less than three miles away, uh, in Palmer, which is the next town over. It was on the border. So right. uh, that's the basic timeline. Uh, but it, do you guys have any questions about it or is there anything I should uh, go into a little bit more? Oh no, I'm all new to this. Keep on going, girl. <laughs> yeah, the the thing that I found that people always clinch to with this case is the freaking first aid kit being opened. And I know that like the girls at Morbid, they did um, an episode about this case. And a lot of people speculated that because, like you mentioned, nothing was disturbed. She had her flip-flops put perfectly in front of her chair and stuff like that. Um, They thought that maybe whoever abducted her was posing as someone in need of assistance. Like maybe they asked her for a Band-Aid or said they had cut themselves. And so she walks over there, opens up the first aid kit. And then that's how, you know, she's either taken or hit over the head or whatever. Even that, like, even the fact that she was, she had the first aid kit opened, like, there's so many different, like, speculations that could be thrown out, because she could have opened it just to help herself. Yeah. Like, maybe she cut herself, or, you know, she could have been helping somebody else. But the fact that nothing was out of place, so there was no struggle at that point. Right. I mean, that's the thing that I think is is odd and baffling. And I think that's why everybody, mm-hmm. you know, focuses on that first on aid that kit. On that first aid kit, um, yeah. You know, one thing about the first aid kit, and, and this is why, you know, you don't really know, is uh, her brother John had been lifeguard um, for three years before she started. And he mm-hmm. had trained her. And one of the things that he had said was that he taught her, you always check the first aid kit. And so it, you know, it could be that there wasn't somebody pretending to be injured. It could be that she was just checking the first aid kit when somebody took her or attacked her. Um, yeah. You know, they saw is there like a supply in. shed around there or yeah. anything like that? Yes, there is a supply shed. Um, as you're walking to the beach. Uh, there is a supply shed there on the way to the beach. Yeah. So maybe what had happened, this is just my stipulation on this, maybe she saw that something was missing and she needed to restock it, and she went to the supply shed to, like, see if they had it and was attacked there. Yeah, and somebody intercepted her there. Yeah, or on the way. Because the fact that everything was so neatly placed just baffles my mind and that the, the... the first aid kit was open, but nothing was out of place, just made it 
even more baffling because it's like when you're being attacked by somebody, there has to be some sort of struggle. First yeah, thing you're going to do is want to throw something at them. Right. And also, you know, she was an athlete. Um, she mm-hmm. was in incredible shape and she was 16 years old. So, you know, for there would have been some type of a struggle. And, you know, the other thing that um, I think is kind of important, uh, two things. It, one is that uh, they brought, you know, they, they did bring in, in dogs and the dogs uh, tracked her up to the cemetery. So, you know, there is some indication that that's the way that they got her out. And the thing about that that's that's also kind of baffling is that, and this is from when I actually went to the, the scene, is, uh, you know, you've got the beach. It's extremely isolated. Uh, you know, that was one of the things before I went to the scene. And they had no I, cameras I, there? Know, yeah, go ahead. They have no cameras there? No, there are no cameras there. It's not even, you know, you. there's no houses. You know, it's a dead-end oh. street. And pond. you go to the end of the street. The parking lot's tiny. And, you know, the houses, there are houses on that, that street, but they're, they're not close. And then when you go to the pond, there's just woods. It's completely isolated. And behind the beach there's a very steep hill and that hill has is full of paths and trails and the trail that the dogs tracked her up goes to the cemetery at the top of the hill and i actually one of the people who had contacted me after i wrote the story uh back in the winter and he said you know they actually used to go sledding and they would start at the cemetery and they'd be in their sleds and they would sled down to the beach. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty steep hill. And that's the other thing that I think is strange is that, you know, you have somebody who, you know, if it's, if it's the man in the white car, I, I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit bringing this up, but if it's the man in the white car, you have the sand truck driver said he saw somebody in a white car that might have been the man um, leave minutes before, leave the parking lot minutes before uh, Molly and her mom pulled in. Well, they got there at 9.58. So let's say the guy left at about 9.55. Uh, he still has to drive down that street take a left, go through, you know, sort of another area, take another left onto Maple Street, go up into the cemetery, drive down to where the woods has the the trail that leads to the beach, go down onto the beach, take Molly, and then drag her up this very steep slope in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, th- that timing is just so pr- tight that, you know, it's it's almost hard. Given to- her age, though, and her weight at that time, it would still be exhausting for an adult to do that on their own. Right. Yeah. Like, right. I yeah. know I have a niece who's like five pounds soaking wet. She still have your shit to carry when I have to carry her ass to bed because that's dead weight. 
Right. right. And then especially if like someone's struggling or, you know, whatever it is. And if you're trying to not make a scene and you're like in a hurry because you know that the pond opens at 10 a.m., you know, there's just so many things. But well, that's the other thing that I think is odd is that, you know, that was the first day of swim lessons, as I, as I mentioned. So, you know, that parents are going to be getting there very soon after 10. I mean, somebody might have, you know, gotten there for all this person knew. Uh, somebody could have gotten there at 10. So, you know, it's just, it seems like there's such that there's such a narrow window to commit this crime. And, and as you guys were saying, as Mikey was saying, um, you know, this is a 125 pound athlete uh, that they've got to get up a very steep hill. Mm -hmm. um, so the two theories that, you know, you come up with are one, the person has a gun, <laughs> you know, and they just point the gun and say, go up the hill. And she's terrified and she follows directions. Right. And, you know, one of the detectives, uh, not a detective on this case, but another detective uh, that I had talked about the Bish case with said, you know, you would be very surprised how compliant people are when they, they're, they're always going to do anything they can to buy more time. And so that it very well could be, you know, if somebody did point a weapon at her and said, I want you to go up that trail, that she may, she very well may have done so willingly thinking she might be able to buy herself some time. Um, you know, given that information, I will probably be like, shoot me, shoot me now so that they can find my body here and figure this case out and you can be put in jail. Like, right. Yes. Oh yeah. my God. That's just, but, it's crazy I, because it's right. Like people do do that. They have a tendency to want to live versus right. wanting to well, die, knowing their situation. Yeah, and especially knowing it's the first day of swim lessons and she knows that, like, people are going to be arriving there any minute and the dude with the sand truck was there. Like, one, she knows she's super isolated. Two, she knows she's probably not near her radio. Three, if it is a stranger and it is someone with a gun, she's terrified. So she's doing whatever she can to keep from the person killing her, attacking her. So she's going to be obedient or whatever. And she's walking wherever they're telling her to. Right. But it's like, there's just so many different factors of things. Like right. This case right. just drives me crazy. Right. I, so I mean, I, we... I do tend to think, you know, that there is maybe something to that idea of the first aid kit, not to obsess about it, but, you know, I do think it is plausible that somebody could have said somebody sh she knew um, could have said, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm hurt. I'm injured. Um, maybe they're up higher on that hill on the trail. And she kind of runs up there to help them. She, or she grabs a bandaid from the kid or whatever she does. And then they grab her, you know, and then that, that cuts a lot of time off of this. Yeah. I think definitely somebody she knew or was familiar with had to be involved or it was definitely more than one person that one creepy dude in the car being the eyes being the lookout, the little hooty hoo person so when somebody comes by he can whistle or flash his lights or whatever and then somebody else waiting by that like hill, the cemetery area, wherever they're trying to take her out of. 
And I think too, it could be a combination. It could be this stranger that's like, Hey, do you want to make a, do you want to make some quick money? There's going to be a girl here. I, you know, like you always hear bizarre things like I'm her father. She doesn't really know me or I'm a lost uncle or whatever. I just need to talk to her, but I need your help. Can you go over there and flag her down? And then X, Y, and Z, like there's just so many crazy things. So I definitely think like you were saying, she had to be familiar with the person. So then she's in a hurry. She's not worried. She's hauling butt over there to help them or see what they need or say hi even, or it was more than one person, one person in the car being the distraction, having their eyes on the scene. And then the other person ready to like lure her in or attack her or whatever it was. I definitely think it's probably one of those two things. Yeah. I I think that's a good point. And you know, uh, that idea of more than one person being involved. um, Yeah. Other people have brought that up to me. And I think that's, that's definitely plausible. Uh, you know, the one thing I, I do tend to think is I, you know, this idea, and I know this goes against what almost everybody believes about the case is, you know, the idea that the car started in the parking lot and then drove to the cemetery. You know, I, my tendency is to think that somebody was already waiting on the trails because when you go to the scene, what you can actually, if there's a point at which you can't see um, the beach from the parking lot at all, it's kind of raised up. So you have to actually go up a little hill and then you reach the beach and you walk down the beach and the lifeguard chair is about halfway down the beach. So um, you can't see it at all from, from the parking lot. Uh, so I, t- I tend to think, but if you go to the beach and you go up that hill, there's an intersection and it's very hard to describe this. So just bear with me. Uh, but there's an intersection of trails, uh, above the beach. And I actually stood at that intersection and from that intersection, you can see everything on the beach. So somebody could have been standing there and they could have watched her lay out her shoes put her towel behind her chair. You know, they could have waited to make sure she set everything up because if everything's set up, that person knows that it's going to look like she probably drowned and this the, the scene will be destroyed. So, you know, you're watching her, you wait for your moment, you either call her, you go down, you do whatever you're going to do. But the other thing about standing at that intersection is if you look to the left, because you're higher up, you can see everything in the parking lot. So that way, you know, if a mom arrives or if a family shows up, you see them driving in the parking lot and you don't go through with it. You just wait for another day. Uh, So that's why I, 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 and then again, you know, once you see her set up her stuff, it takes 45, I think it took me, oh God, it was either 33 or 45. But it, it, it's less than a minute. You go down, you grab her, you bring her up to the cemetery. Um, the cemetery is extremely isolated. And then, you know, you, you drive away. But wasn't she running late that day, too, anyways? Yes. Due to the car accident? Yes. So what if that was the cause? Like, what if that other person that got into the car accident was the cause of it all? 
like the start of his this this other person being like okay let's kidnap this girl and abduct her right you yeah know. I, you know I, I really hope because I, you know i as i said there's a lot of different cases that i'm looking into but this one is is something that i've followed from the very beginning and you know i really hope this gets resolved um the other thing that i i think is odd about um this case that hasn't been talked about too much is that um the in the uh, cemetery where the dogs again traced her scent to um the place where the car was parked there's no graves there it's at the bottom of a hill uh it's extremely isolated but uh, the groundskeeper for the cemetery happened to be there at the time this was taking place. And he supposedly reported seeing a white car, you know, at the end of the trail. But the thing that I, I can't quite figure out is that there were also reports of screams. So, you know, some of the neighbors in those houses on the dead end heard screams. So if you have the groundskeeper and he's there between 10 and 1035 and he sees the car and no one's in the car, why doesn't he hear the screams? Right. Yeah. It's all so just bizarre. And like you said, like the whole, the timeline is what just drives me bonkers. It's literally the timeline because there's so few minutes I definitely think you're working the right angle with the person that did this or persons. They had to have already been there. And the fact that that car or a white car was seen the day before and the day of leads me to believe too that somebody was definitely staging it out. Maybe they didn't necessarily want to take Molly in particular. You know, like they were just wanting to take someone and whoever was going to be there you know, that day they they stumbled upon, they're like, oh, there's a lifeguard that works here. Let's see who it is. Oh, okay. Let me just observe her today. And then that's when, you know, Maggie stares. There was like nothing before. important about this girl prior to this. Like she just lived a normal life, like being a lifeguard or was her family rich or um, no, did she have I, something? As far as I know, uh, you know, they had... Uh, ironically, um, they had moved to Warren, Massachusetts because they had lived, you know, in a larger city and they, they thought it would be a safe place to, to raise their kids. Uh, you know, and it, and it is, it's, if you go there, it's, you know, your typical new England town, it's, it's very small and everybody knows everybody and it's pretty. Uh, and you know, she was, um, you know, she had a lot of friends, she enjoyed soccer, uh, you know, so you're right, there, there was nothing that would suggest that she would be taken, like uh, targeted specifically right, for a reason right. or something. Her father yeah. was a probation officer. So there is that angle. Um, yeah. But I mean, that is something but I don't think somebody would murder his kid for that. Right. Yeah. But you know, one I mean, of the there things... are worse things out there I've heard of, so I wouldn't put it behind me. <laughs> right, right. Or in front of me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things that, you know, would be, I'd really like to know is, uh, you know, because this June they, they named um, Frank Sumner as, as a person of interest in the case. And, 
you know, this has been the first person of interest in the case that they had named in, in quite a long time. Uh, you know, years back, they had named a guy named uh, Rodney Stanger, uh, who had murdered his girlfriend down in Florida, and he had been connected with the case, but they never they never really found anything and or released anything or charged him. Um, there was another guy, uh, you know, a few years later who was connected with the case. But, uh, you know, this is the first person that they'd named in in quite a long time. And so, you know, he does resemble the sketch. <laughs> Uh, but I, I would be, they said they had gotten some recent information within the past few months that made him much more likely of a suspect than he had been prior. Yeah. yeah. So, and I wonder if it has something to do with maybe someone coming forward about like his whereabouts or something like that. Um, but before we dive into <clears throat> persons of interest and who we think maybe did it, since you have the firsthand knowledge of being at the scene, walk us through a little bit when you went there, what were some things you were testing? What were some things you saw that maybe were overlooked? Because I never even thought about like the supply shed or areas where people. No, that instantly popped up in my head. Like yeah. when so, she. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. yeah, yeah. So go ahead and walk. <laughs> walk Sorry. Yeah, I will. I will definitely do that. Um, well, as, as I mentioned, you know, one of the reasons I actually decided to go to the site, because I had been researching it and I had read quite a lot about it, uh, but I had ever, never actually been there. Uh, unfortunately, it was the winter, uh, so the conditions were not matched perfectly. Uh, but if, if anything, it made it a little bit more difficult and took me longer to do some of these things. So I... I drove to the site and the first thing that struck me is that, you know, just how isolated it is. It's the end of a dead end street. Uh, the houses are even, they're a little bit away from the parking lot. The parking lot is very, very small. And, uh, you know, definitely a car that does not belong there would stand out without, without question. Uh, and so, so that struck me uh, how, it, and then again, the idea that you can't see the beach at all from the parking lot, you have to, uh, kind of go on a path and the path rises. It goes across a little stream, uh, you pass the shed and then you go onto the beach and, um, there's at the same time, there's a trail that leads from the parking lot, uh, and it goes above the beach, right? And then there's another trail that leads from the beach to the cemetery. But the other thing is, and other people had contacted me about this as well after the story came out, is the entire area is is riddled with trails. Um, you know, I had uh, people tell me that they used to ride their bikes there, they used to go on ATV there, and that the the trails lead all around the oh, lake, and I they're they're completely isolated. Uh, so, you know, even though the dogs did track her to the cemetery, you know, uh, I actually walked down some of the trails, and uh, I, weirdly enough, I ended up at this abandoned uh, trailer that had you know this old disgusting mattress in it, and you know so. 
I mean, there were definitely places uh, that she could have been taken. I, I tend to think she was taken to a car in the cemetery and that she left. But, you know, you don't know because there are a lot of trails uh, that go around that lake. Yeah, it's so crazy. And you were even like timing things, right? Yeah. Like, hey, we're in the parking lot. I can't see the beach yet. It's going to take her at least a couple of minutes to walk to set her stuff up. Like I was watching and going through your timeline of what you were doing when you were there. And I'm like, yeah, there's just there's no there's no way there's no way that someone mm -hmm. showed up right as her mom was leaving had enough time to convince her to get in the car to come with them or whatever, unless we use the whole, you know, holding her at gun or knife point type thing. Like they already had to be there. They had to be familiar with the area because just from your photos and that article and you describing it, I would be freaking lost. I would be like, what am I doing? There's so many like little parts, the cemetery, that weird little trailer, you know, there's just so many places like you said. And then, add in the fact that there's all those trails running through everywhere. I don't think it happened by happenstance like at all. No, mm -hmm. I, I definitely think it was planned. Um, I, I think this took some, some, it was definitely thought out in advance. I don't think somebody just decided this particular day to do it. I think they, they knew they were going to take her. And I, I think it was um, thought out. Uh, My question, though, is why? Like, there was nothing of value. Well, I think it was... Unless this person was, was obsessed sexual, with her. I think it was sexual in nature. I think someone was obsessed with her. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Because well, she is a very cute girl. And, she's you know, super cute, yeah. Well, one of the things that sad. when they did recover some of the items, they recovered her bones and a few other things, and they did recover part of her swimsuit and um, the Boston Globe reported that, you know, the crotch had been ripped out. So, you know, the, the, my best guess is that someone was obsessed with her and they planned this out and they took her and, you know, they raped her and then. And this man is still out there. Oh yeah. Unless it's Mr. Part. Sumner who died like five years ago, but I just don't think it was him. I think there were a lot of people that they've said fit the sketch that they interviewed, but also they, they had so many people that they polygraphed that failed and like miserably failed. I think it was over like 10 or 11 people 11, that did not 11. pass polygraphs. Yeah. As far as I know, 11 people failed the polygraph. Well, see, I know a lot about polygraphs. Polygraphs can't give you an accurate reading. So like, it's all about your feelings and your nerves so if you're nervous taking a polygraph test, you could feel that instantly. Yes. Even if you're telling the truth. So yes, and, like, and that's that why is, polygraphs aren't held up in court. So yeah, that is some, what some of the people said. For example, the sand truck driver, from my understanding, uh, failed the polygraph, but mm -hmm. supposedly he was also extremely nervous. Um, I, you know, I would love to know who all the other 10 people were mm -hmm. that, that failed it. Um, yeah but and I feel like nerves I don't throw the polygraph 
failure away as like chalking it up to nerves because they establish your baseline. So if immediately yes. your baseline is jittery and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm just really nervous. Like, you know, I mean, this is crazy. I knew her. I had saw her there. I really don't have anything like they're going to establish your baseline. So when people fail and fail badly, like, you know, Chris Watts, for example. Oh, God. Like, well, he was not even like he was nervous, but he wasn't even lying. He was pretty much like leading them into different directions. So, like, yeah. right. so it's just like. I don't know. I would be very, very interested, though, to see who the other 10 people are that right. did not pass their polygraph. Right. I do. I do know her, her boyfriend at the time uh, did pass the polygraph. He was considered to be, you, you know, early on. He was never named a suspect, but certainly suspicion fell on him. And uh, oh, of course, that's the, that's the first person they'll go to. Exactly. Is the uh, significant other or the spouse. Yes. And so uh, he, but from, from my understanding, he did pass. But uh, if you want to get really weird with this case, one of the strangest things that I discovered when I was researching it is how many people close to Molly died young, uh, very soon or, you know, after this, this happened. Um, her boy, her boyfriend died uh, in a, in a one person car crash uh, you know, several years, it was 2006, I believe. Um, two of the people who were friends of hers that summer, and in fact, I had uh, somebody that I heard from actually knew those people. Uh, one of them was Gerard Tatro. He was 14, and he used to hang out with Molly sometimes on the beach. Um, and then his older brother, Kenneth, who was 18 at the time and was also close friends with Molly. Um, they're both dead as well. And then there was a fourth guy whose name was Peter. He was the son of a state, state trooper who was also a friend of hers. And he died um, a couple of days after they found her uh, remains. Uh-uh, dude. This yeah. case is super scary now. Like, now she's taken out everybody who was involved. That's what this woman's doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, insane. This is some poltergeist shit, guys. It's just so creepy because they have so many, like you said, so many of those people have died. So it's like, is there a connection? Is there like a gray black cloud that's following people in this town or people that knew her? Like, that does definitely bring a whole other creepy. The element. weird thing is that her boyfriend who passed the polygraph test passed away. Yes. Like, that's the one weird thing that I find odd. Well, well the other thing yeah. that, like, I noticed you mentioned was his stepbrother or his brother had mentioned the fact that, like, she always kicked her shoes under her chair. Yes. She never let them out in front. Yes. So when we were researching and people just kept saying nothing looked disturbed. Yeah. That also, to me, I was like, that shit was staged. Something was staged right. or she knew the person. So I found that mm -hmm. super interesting too when you brought that point up in the article um, was that he was like, yeah, there's no way. Like every time you would see her at the beach, her shoes were underneath her chair. Right. They were not out in front. Right. It's crazy people. how people have things down on routine and how little we notice them until they're missing. Right. 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 You know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I 
there was something about maybe some of the brush being disturbed, you know, on that trail. Uh, but again, that could have been from all the chaos because there were just so many people there. So you're not, you can't even be sure. About yeah. That. But I do. They, what they should have done was treated it like a, a murder and actually put up flags and do the whole, you know, or even just investigation. A like, <laughs> not necessarily a murder, but they should have just treated it like, okay, she's gone missing. Whether she ran away or not, we don't want to regret not processing the scene so let's close it off let's get people off the beach like yeah. that's just so crazy right because for a while too didn't they want to chalk it up to like maybe well she the thing that sucks it. is that that woman took her whistle from where it was placed at right so like even that that little bit of wherever that whistle was placed at and the position that it was in could have told a lot to investigators right yeah i don't know yeah but, you know, I, I guess it gets back to this idea of it's a small, tiny town and you just don't think that that type of thing is ever going to happen in your town. Right. You know, it was just and not to I just did this other case, the the Shauna Garber case. And, you know, one of the these kids, they they actually heard the murder happening on Halloween night and they went and they told their parents, you know, we hear screams. And they said, well, you know, it's Halloween. And so nobody took it seriously. So I think it's just that kind of, you just don't imagine that, you know, there's actually somebody was stalking her and took her from. It's crazy that you say that because around here in Pennsylvania, where I live, a lot of crazy shit happens and nobody reacts to it. And one day something happened outside of my house in my area and I heard this loud bang and this boom go off. And I was like, instantly in my head, I'm like, Oh my God, are we being attacked? Like, is this how the U S is being attacked? They're starting in Pennsylvania and then working their way through like the United States or, you know, what is going on? But it's funny that you say that because my instinct was to run and hide or ignore it. Right. It wasn't, let me go check this out and see what it is. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and I mean, Molly's mom knew, I, I think, you know, they were trying to tell Molly's mom in the beginning, oh, well, she probably just went off with a friend or, and, you know, her mom knew right away something was wrong uh, as soon as she did find out. But I think other people, you know, yeah, they just thought, oh, well, you know, she's a teenager. She probably went off with somebody. It's What's the saying? Your mother knows best. Yeah, and mother's intuition and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm telling you, if I ever went missing, my mother, there would be no place for somebody to hide. My mother <laughs> would be like number one detective on the yeah. scene of the crime. And that's only because I'm her baby, so. Yeah. And like the yeah. other thing too, it's yeah. just. But, but I mean, that's why I, you know, even it's though It's just I, so I, weird. Yeah. You know, I do tend to be again, based on the stuff that I've researched, I, I tend to be a little skeptical of the guy in the car, but it's, it's what Mikey was just saying, you know, moms know. So, I mean, maybe her instinct, you know, she somehow is right. You know, she realized this guy was going to take her daughter and. Are they seeing this guy at all? No, he's not been found. They just know because she saw him and gave his description 
And then the police worked up a sketch as best as they could from what she remembered seeing. And then they've questioned a lot of people that look like him, but they've not found the him in question, so to speak. That's that's so crazy because, like, the fact that out of the blue nowhere, this mother points out that she sees this creepy man and she's staring him down, you know? So she's got a pretty good description of him for for them to not even like warrant this and be like, okay, let's find this, this person. Like she had probably the best description of him because she stared this man down knowing that something bad was going to happen or feeling like something bad was going to happen. Right. Although again, you know, just to play devil's advocate, he could have just been a fisherman, you know, he could, there's, um, again, that is true. If you go back and you look at the Boston globe, um, after her bones were found in 2003, uh, Jerry, Jerry Tatro, who is no longer, you know, he died. Um, but at the time, you know, he was a kid and he said there used to be this goofy, quote, chubby guy uh, who would try to catch fish with his hands. And he was snorkeling at the pond and he drove a white car and he was looking at Molly all the time. And yeah. he thought he thought in the interview with the, the Globe, he said, well, I, I think, you know, maybe he was the guy. But I don't know, because, you know, there's something about that description of the guy where he's just this sort of goofy guy and he's trying to catch fish with his hands. And somehow, you know, you don't necessarily think if that was really the guy and this is the guy in the white car, is, is he really the type of person who is going to pull off this type of crime mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah and then so we know she shows up for work and in a matter of you know 20 minutes or less she vanishes and then her remains are found three years later almost to the day right because she goes missing at the end of june in 2000 and her remains are found in june of 2003 by a hunter so you also visited where her remains were found right yes I did. So, so wait, this hunter found the remains? Yes. Apparently, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Is The guy was hunting in the area. It was only about three miles from where Molly disappeared. And he had found a blue bathing suit. And that's, of course, what Molly was wearing the day she disappeared. But, you know, he didn't necessarily connect it with Molly Bish's disappearance. Uh, you know, and then he was happened to be talking to... Uh, a friend of his um, who worked, who was very obsessed with the Molly Bish case. And he said, you know, take me to where you found that suit. And he did. And then they realized it was Molly's suit. And they had a massive search on uh, Whiskey Hill, which is where they, it's across from a hunting club. And that's where they found, um, they found her, uh, tongue ring. They found uh, 26 bones and, uh, you know, I think they found some hair. So they, they found enough that um, they were able to use DNA to know that it was her. And uh, so that's where she was. But there were also um, gouge marks. Sorry, not to get too gruesome. Uh, there were gouge marks in the bones. So the other thing is, you know, that does suggest that maybe 
she was some of that was was dragged from where she actually was left Mm -hmm. by animals or wildlife or what have you yes yeah it's so horrible yeah and then obviously they questioned the hunter right i mean what came of that right no i think he was cleared of any I mean, I think, you know, again, there's always suspicion that that falls on somebody who finds it. And especially because he was connected with, um, you know, this former police officer who had been uh, very interested in that case and all, also the Holly Perrainen case uh, in, you know, a near she disappeared from a town that was very close by in 1993. And uh, a lot of people try to connect those two cases. And I, I'll talk about that in a second. But, uh, you know, they, they cleared the hunter and, and they didn't connect either of them, uh, you know, with her disappearance. But, um, you know, it's it's good that they, they found the stuff. It's a very treacherous area. Uh, when I was there, you know, the hill, again, it's, it's immensely steep. Um, there's caves. Uh, when they were doing the search, there were even a couple people, somebody dislocated a shoulder because there's oh ledges gosh. and yeah. So it's, it's oh, actually hell. remarkable that her remains were, were found at all. So yeah. like at any point in time, this man could have been, or I should say person, this person could have dragged her body and just kind of done whatever with it and whatever bones are left wherever right. her remains could be scattered all over that place. Yes. But they, but the one thing I do think, uh, you know, again, based on the, the the location of the crime, and then based on where the the bones were found, I do think it was somebody who knew the area well. Maybe it wasn't somebody who lived in town, but it was definitely somebody who hunted in that area, who had grown up in, or or who knew that area intimately. Because I, I don't think the area where the bones, where the body w- was, you know, it's not someplace you would necessarily just find if you didn't know the right. area. Right. And I think, like you said, they don't necessarily have to be from there. But like in a nearby area, maybe they go hunting, they go fishing, maybe they're an avid, just avid outdoors person, right. um, and they go camping. And or it's somebody kind of who stuff. scoped the area for like a few days. Yeah, but even mm-hmm. then, like how Lori is mentioning, things are just treacherous. Treacherous. They're not easy to find. There's steep hills. Like you know. If I was going to go commit a, a murder or a kidnapping randomly, sure, I might stalk out the place, but I wouldn't have that intimate knowledge to go to a place like Whiskey Hill that's, you know, also in the woods and remote and there's caves and all these things. Like, if people are going to plan things out, Typically, we see that, you know, maybe they have a cache of something somewhere. So when they take this person or these persons and they're moving them or doing a body dump, they know that area. And that's why they're dumping the bodies there because they know it's secluded. They know they can get in and out of there without being seen and things of that nature. So I definitely think it was someone familiar with the area for sure, like a hunter, outdoorsman, fisherman, 
yeah what have you like for sure <sighs> right yeah um and you know that could be how the person uh right and so i definitely think we covered a ton in the part one of the molly bish um case that we've been talking about Lori has had so interesting so i can't many... wait to meet up with him again yes Lori has had so many amazing details and just insight firsthand so we just to review we kind of did the overview we went through the timeline as we know it from documents and files and then we've heard Lori's um recollection from when she was actually at the scene walking through things and we've kind of thrown some names out there of people um but i think we are going to end this episode where it's at that way we can talk about weird connections that people tried making with other persons of interest um go a little bit more into mr sumner um because that was very very recently um that he has been brought up and talk a little bit more about that and close everything up in part two. So we thank you so much, guys, for giving us 55 minutes of your time. And your ears. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we are going to have Lori back to finish up the second part of this amazing, bizarre, and crazy case. And hopefully... Like we always say, if you know anything or you've heard of anything, we always suggest going, reporting. I will link everything in the description, the foundation, um, the Molly Bish Foundation, where you can contact if anybody has information. Mm -hmm. But other than that, we will catch you guys on part two. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.